0: what's up nation and all the brian stan fans this is eve edwards and my main man brian stan and uh this is episode three we're coming in and we got a lot of stuff to talk about this week brian you were you were you were letting me in on some of the details of of your life this past week and some of that stuff sounds amazing the fights you called last weekend i'm excited to talk about those uh from from Vidal and ayakinta controversy all the way down to to Dustin Poirier looking good and representing Thug Jitsu and uh, Mendez and Lamas. I mean, Mendez, the, the guy still looks unstoppable besides the Aldo Aldo, Aldo effect. So, um, man, I just want to jump right into it. How are you feeling this week?
1: Man, I'll tell you, I feel uh, like you said, you know, I had an opportunity this week to go to a, a business summit in Vegas. I, I just feel inspired, man. I was around all these different people devoted their life to service and it was incredible um, but it was all really kicked off by calling those fights in Fairfax and man you said it man Chad Mendes I, I have not seen I can't remember the last fight I've seen where a guy punched a, guy, a dude in the head specifically the top of the head one of the hardest parts of your body and, and knocked him out from it that shows you how much power that little guy who I, I call him little but he's about as wide as he is tall possesses man that is power
0: yeah, uh, Mendez, Mendez, he's a scary dude, man. Um, and he's an athlete for a guy to be that, you know, he's built kind of like a Sean Shirk physically, but the, the things that he can do athletically, it's, it's, it's a different, you know, that's a different breed of animal. Yeah, he's super fast. It's interesting. You know, he was
1: a cheerleader early on in his athletic career. There's a funny story behind that. So I'm getting ready to call his Jose Aldo fight, and, and one of his coaches comes up. And uh, says to me, hey, you know what would be really cool, Brian, is if you would, if you would work into the fact that he was actually a cheerleader during the fight. You know, don't tell him, don't tell him I told you, but it would be so cool if you, and this was Justin Buckles did this to him. And so I worked it in, but I couldn't work in the whole story. The reason he was a cheerleader is because Chad's dad thought that the cheerleading coach was hot. He had a crush on her. And so he <laughs> made Chad join the cheerleading team. Uh, so that he could get a date with the cheerleading coach, and that's the real reason behind it. So poor Chad, you know, was forced to do something he didn't want just to get his father in there.
0: Man, I was I was thinking that that the purpose would have been because Chad was interested in a cheerleader or, or something along those lines, getting, you just getting having that in with the cheerleaders. But nope, he was he was uh, what? What do you what do you call it? Um, what's the? He was what, I forget. He's wingman for his dad. You know? Yeah.
1: He was. Yeah, he's not the only that. one. Derek Brunson was a cheerleader, I believe, in
0: college too. Man, it's it's. I don't hate on cheer, the male cheerleaders. I, I feel like they they got it. It's it's like when you're in high school and you you take home ec. You know, you you kind of get a rap for it. But man, you've got the in with the ladies. You're talking to them all the time. You got you've got a good good thing going there. Certainly,
1: you reap the benefits of it. And well. In Derek Derek Brunson's case, I know for sure. Um, you know, his, his whole thing was more was more getting himself around as many females as possible. I mean, he is the king, the king in combat sports of selfies, and uh, you know, dude's always ripped. But that was the main reason he was cheerleading is to get closer to the women.
0: Yeah, you you, I mean. Any chance you can get, you know, you 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 have to you have to make the odds or try to push the odds in your favor. The, the, <laughs> the women, they 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 have all the benefits. They have all the, you know, they have the bait. Basically, it's like the, all they have to do is be attractive and be nice. And 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 some of them don't even have to be nice. They just get they get that attention. We we have to work hard for it. We go out there and get in a cage and punch each other in the face for it.
1: Amen. Amen. <laughs> You talk about getting sidetracked. We're talking fights, and now we're talking about being a male cheerleader. But, uh, you know, got to bring up the fact that after that Masvidal, after the Masvidal decision backstage, I mean, it, it seemed like Jorge was just done with this sport. He was so fed up. He was upset about it. And, um, you know, very much like we saw with, with Nick Diaz after the Carlos Condit fight, he seemed to be finished with all of this. Now, we all know emotions run high after a fight. Um but he was he was very very upset after that decision.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean I can't blame him. I don't I I can't think off the top of my head if you've been in any of those situations, but I feel like I've been in that situation once or twice where uh, the the judges call is 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 I felt that it was wrong and 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 that was pretty I mean to me it was pretty obvious. Yeah, you can always make an argument and of course you can say that I'm biased. We're teammates, we're training partners, we've known each other for years. But um when you drop a guy, you know when you dominate a round, when you drop a guy in, in another round and and you still you lose I, it's really really hard to swallow, man. And the thing about it is these judges. I don't know how you feel about this. I'd like to get your take on it, but the fact that these judges, they are effectively affecting your career. You know, uh, every, everything changes after a loss. Everything changes after a win. And and, and for a judge, for someone's opinion to, to, to ruin something that's, I don't know, it's pretty obvious that, that in my eyes that George won that fight. And you get two guys saying that he lost after a pretty dominant performance, landing more shots, um, being smoother in there. You know, it's 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 hard to swallow.
1: Yeah, you know, I'd have to agree. You know, I I I did expect to hear the judges to call Mosfidal. I absolutely expected it. Did he decrease his work rate a little bit in Coast? He did. Yeah. And so anytime you do that, I mean it's it's sad, but it's fact. You have to game plan for the judges. And so when you know you're up and when you feel you're comfortable in there, you've got to be very careful not to get too comfortable. And, uh, you know, I give Iaquinta all the credit in the world. I mean, he did. He battled, man. He fought hard. But I've seen it so many times before. And when I I coach guys, I tell them, you can quickly find yourself behind on the scorecards just based on volume because these judges will count that aggression. As as points to them. I mean, you could be punching at air. You could be hitting the other guy's gloves, and he's parrying your punches, and maybe just skimming his head. And and if they just see that over and over again, and you're not doing enough, they will sometimes count that. And and uh, you know, the biggest contributor I thought was Ayquinta landed some devastating leg kicks. Masvidal's leg was turning purple. Um, and and so when I heard that the decision went the other way, I can't say that I was all that surprised. And it's not because. I thought it was necessarily deserving. It's more because we've just seen it so many times before. You know, we saw it with Ross Pearson and Diego Sanchez. We've seen yeah. it before where the judges get it wrong, and and they judge based on the other guy's effort, not on who's actually winning the fight. Mosfidal was clearly in control. I thought his left hand looked as solid as it's ever looked. I mean, his check hooks, his jabs, I mean, they were on point all night long. He I thought the first round should have been a ten eight round. Yeah. Agreed. Which, you know, which takes away um, you know, what those judges saw in the first place. When you get a near finish like that after a pretty dominant round, anyways, that should have been 10 9. In my eyes, that should have been a 10 8. But again, we have massive inconsistency with 10 8 rounds. So, you know, really tough. But then, you know, I could I'm telling you, this is one of those moments where your calm fights were, you know. Things just all of a sudden don't play the way you expect them to. John Anik goes to interview Iaquinta, and as soon as those interviews are done, I've got to pick up the slack while John Anik comes from the cage back to get on headsets. And so when Iaquinta basically tells the crowd uh, to F off, you know, look, it's not the right thing to say, but you couldn't help yourself but laugh. You get that New York Beastie Boy (laughs) accent, and it was funny, man.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm trying to picture your face right now as he says that, and and you have to grab the mic, and 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 John is in the cage, and it's basically back to you, Brian, and it's um, yeah. So I Kinta just said told the crowd to <laughs> f off, and 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 um, I don't really know what's going on now. Let's get yeah. into this Mendez Lamas fight.
1: Yeah, basically, so I think I said something effective. Well, uh, emotions run high in there, you know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be unbiased, you know. Uh, but I, I, I gotta admit, I watched the replay of that probably 30 times. I mean, Anna, Anna texted it to me and we must've watched it 30 times laughing back and forth at this guy. And you know, it's tough, man, because the, the, the MMA crowds in America are very, very tough on their fighters. And that was not in my eyes, a boring fight. And it is not his fault. If you're gonna boo anybody, boo the judges. the judges. And he obviously felt like they were booing him, and many of them weren't booing him. They were just booing the decision. Uh, but, but we don't we don't think clearly right at the end of a fight. That's all. That's a tough time to judge fighters on.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really hard. I've always thought about that. I remember thinking. Um, I remember standing in the cage one time, and Joe Rogan asked me a question, and I remember thinking to myself. Joe, I just got punched in the head like 15 times and you're asking me a tough question. I don't know how to answer that. So I completely get that. On top of that, there's there's tons of emotions going on, win or lose, especially when you go through a war. Um, there's a lot of emotions going on. When you win it, you're you're a bit happy. When 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 you win it by decision, and you understand that the fight was close, especially a part of the fight where you were you were in trouble, where you were almost out of it early in the fight, and then you had to bite back, scrape back, and fight back to get back to the to being even or or, or being trying to win the fight, and then it gets to a decision. You win the decision. You hear the crowd booing, and you don't really you don't really you don't really process that as they're booing the judges. You know it's. It's my effort out there. It's the work that I've put in out there, and and that's what they're booing. And 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 you you feel like you know what you've done is not appreciated. And I understand that. I don't I don't fault Ayakinta for being upset with the crowd. Um, but I think he was extremely emotional at the time, and I n- I don't necessarily think the crowd was booing him. They may have been booing the decision, but that's another thing about the crowd. It's 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 we're not in Japan, you know. The crowd in America, they will tell you how they feel, and um. Even if, even if it's not directed at you, you, you kind of get the brunt of it.
1: Yeah, you know it, you've got to you've got to be prepared for it as a fighter. It's it's you know it, it's a difficult transition when you come to the UFC and you start to obviously you got to deal with the the transition of fighting world, but then you also got to deal with the media and you got to deal with how you represent yourself and your own personal brand and. And that is something that we really don't know what the effects on Iaquinta's brand are going to be. You know, obviously the sponsor landscape has completely changed, so that's not like that's he's got to worry about anymore in terms of companies wanting to invest in him. I mean, he's going to be wearing rock, I would assume. Um, but you know, his his odds of getting a big time deal, his odds of, of of you know getting more opportunities could be at stake if if he's known as a guy. Who can get really loose-lip on the mic? So I think that's something that he needs to be conscious of. And while it was fun one time, would would probably be smart. I don't know if he has apologized or not, but would definitely be smart for him to address it. And he may have already done this, but to just address it and talk about, hey, you know, I was really emotional at the time, shouldn't have done that, um, something of that nature. It's something he needs to be conscious of going forward, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I think he spoke with Ariel Hawani and 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 explained somewhat of his side of the story but um I yeah i agree you, you've gotta you've gotta put it out there that you know wait people have got to understand they've got to know that you're emotional at that point you know there's you put in weeks of time to get to that point and and then you know you you fight back you win a decision and you you feel like everybody's down on you like your effort wasn't worth it um so yeah i definitely think he needs to address it but talking about effort and 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 just i was amazed by dustin poirier at 155 pounds man that is my boy i was i was i I watched it and i was so proud i was i don't know i was flabbergasted proud honored at every moment when when bruce Buffer said he is a thug jitsu fighter that's the second guy to go in there and to do that and and to do that for 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 a kid that i feel is better than i ever was (laughs) i don't that that that's a proud moment for me, man. And then for him to go out there and do what he did. I, when I met Dustin, Dustin couldn't wrestle to save his life. Now he's grambying out of arm drags. <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty awesome to see him in, in there at 55, comfortable, having fun again too. Yeah, he looked fantastic. And and the big thing is, and, and John Annick
1: pointed this out. Um, we've seen guys who go up in weight class and they can just endure the shots again for some. I mean, the weight cut. I don't know if there's science to back it up, um, but when guys go back up and weight, they can better punch in. And you know, they, you know, uh, Fajita can can throw. He's a powerful guy. I've called his fights before. He's got tricky power, and I definitely saw you know Poye able to take his best shot. Didn't even phase it. Where in other fights we've seen Poye get rocked, he looked a lot smoother in the pocket too. He definitely looked like an improved guy. Certainly someone to watch in an already crowded division. I mean, think about how many fun fights there are at 155 pounds now. It's absolutely ridiculous in a good way. Um, it's cool to see. You know, it was really cool to see that for him. And it is special for guys. People people develop such strong relationships and really good fighters in many kids aren't just products of their coaches. They're products of the veterans that were around them in their career who really helped them. You know, find their way through this process, and that was a, an amazing tribute to you uh, from Poirier.
0: Yeah, I, I, I almost cried. No, I'm not BSing you when I say that, man. Um, to hear that in that moment, you know, uh, it's one of those things because that's 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 a big deal, man. When you're out there, you're fighting, everything's on the line, and you want you want to represent yourself well, and then to 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 represent a friend at the same time, and you. There's there's so much unknown going forward. You know, the moment Bruce Buffer announces your name, there's th- that that's it. Everything beyond that is is a toss-up, is a coin toss. You have no idea what's going to transpire within the next 15 to 25 minutes. And for him to do that, I I really appreciated that. And yeah, man, that's that's my boy DP. Is, he's a tough little son of a bitch and I I'm, I'm proud of him for what he's doing and I I look forward to him at 55. Um He's fighting, he's fighting a guy I got to mix it up with a few months ago in Yancey Medeiros in Louisiana on June 6th. So I'm really looking forward to that fight. I'd love to see, see where he's—I think this is going to really explain to us where he is at 55 by taking on another tough guy, a guy that I've been in there with, and a guy that hits hard. So I'm, I'm excited to see that one, too. Well, I'm calling that fight, so I think that means you
1: should have to go to it so we could, uh, we could obviously record— from from New Orleans, you know. Actually, we, you know, obviously we we recorded last week with Mike Brown, where I was in Virginia,
0: you were in Austin, Texas. But I think this is a good excuse for you to go to New Orleans and watch fights. I th- I think Brian, I think you're onto something there. It's not very far. I got buddy a buddy fighting on the card. Um, yeah, I think that's something we're going to plan for. Um, so if 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 it doesn't happen sooner, the first episode of. <laughs> We're, I think we've got. I, oh, speaking of the first episode, first episode of you know this dichotomy that is that is you and I, uh, live and together will be. If it doesn't happen before, then it'll be in Louisiana. But that's another thing, man. We've got to name this thing, and I think um, I think that I was one of the Twitter followers of. I don't know if it was yours or mine or both, but she mentioned that we we talked about the dichotomy between our personalities and within our own minds on some, certain issues. Um, and that's, that's a pretty good name for our podcast. You know, we're, I'm, I'm the thug jitsu master. You're, you're a awarded soldier, you know, um, honored and, 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 and you've done some really, really important and, and, and save lives, you know, risk your life to save lives and do other things. And, and I'm just representing thug jitsu. I'm not, I haven't done the things that you've done, but we are two completely different guys and, Yet we are good friends. We can sit around talk and discuss the world and life, and that in itself is a dichotomy. And I think I think that's a part of our name. Agree, I agree. We and we
1: I'll tell you, what, we got some great submissions for the name. I was really impressed there. I mean, there was some, you know, the distance. Um, I mean, people sending us great pictures. We're definitely going to try and recreate the uh, white man can't jump picture.
0: <laughs> yes, um,
1: <laughs> I got to find a hat like the one Woody Harrelson was wearing. Um, but I agree, man, the dichotomy with Eves and Brian or, or, or whatever, every, you, know, you know, let's find it. We, we know that that's the direction we want to go in. So now we'll ask our followers, hey, you know, what it, how do you think it should be phrased? We know we want our names in it. We want the word dichotomy in there to really describe what this is all about. And, you know, speaking of, um, you know, talking about that dichotomy, I mean, you know, we, we, we talked about some of the, you know, going on in the mixed martial arts community. But, you know, we always like to, to bring up things that are going on in the world and, and man, Eves, I had such a cool opportunity this week. I was out in Las Vegas at something called the Healthcare Business Summit, which is a, a summit I go to every year, and they raise money and awareness for the company. I run Higher Heroes USA, and they, they honor um, some amazing, amazing service members. This time, uh, we were able to honor Tom who is a Navy SEAL, who was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, one of the very few to win that award and is actually still alive, and uh, and the story of how he won it was incredible. Going behind enemy lines in Vietnam to rescue two down pilots. I mean, it's this guy is so hard. Then he was later on shot in the head in Vietnam. He would recover from that to then do 20 years in the elite units of the FBI. And, and his idea of retirement is to, to own a horse ranch in Idaho. Um, and he was one of the many amazing people. I mean, I, I got to meet Leon Panetta, who's a former director of the CIA and former secretary of defense, and listen to him speak. Um, and, and I was able to and hear the story of Charles Mully and his family in Kenya. And I'll tell you, man, that blew my hair back.
0: Yeah. You started, you, we, we, we were talking before we started recording and you just told me about this guy that's, that's, you know, has, has adopted some orphans and, and I, I, I could never do it justice, but you were telling me that story and I was just like, absorbed in it I I was that that you have to start that over again because I think everybody else needs to hear that and 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 needs to get all the details because some of the things you start I'm getting goosebumps I'm literally Maddie will tell you I'm getting goosebumps thinking like thinking about this story that you're about to really really expand on so please tell me tell me about this guy
1: certainly Uh, you know so I, I had no idea who he was before this and obviously we all know about the the massacre that just took place in Kenya not long ago. and and what was it a year ago, where they had the mall massacre in Kenya. Yep. And there's just been so much violence there. But I'm sitting at, at this this conference, and it's the final, you know, uh, onstage show of the whole thing. And they air twenty minutes of what is going to be a documentary called Molly. And some people feel strongly that it could actually win at Sundance. And so I'm watching it. And it's about this man, Charles Mulley, who was born in Kenya, um, and his father was an alcoholic, violently used to beat his mother. They were extraordinarily poor, like most, or like many people are in Kenya. And so he would end up on the streets with nothing. And you know, out of nowhere, he, just, he gets fed up with living like this. And no more excuses. He goes out and, and, and he begins to invest in himself and he begins to work hard and he starts a taxi cab company with one car, and he grows it to where he's got this, this huge bus line going all throughout Kenya. Then he gets into gas and oil. Then he gets into insurance, and he basically becomes a business mogul in oh. Kenya and becomes extremely wealthy. He's got this beautiful family and this mansion, and, and he cannot believe I mean, he is not, statistically, there's no way this man was supposed to amount to this. I mean, he was in the slums of Kenya like so many poor African children are and just abandoned. One day he's driving and he's just he's very frustrated. He's not happy, he doesn't know why. And he after four hours of just sitting in his car, he gets this epiphany, of what he needs to do. He sells all of his businesses, he liquidates everything, invests in this big complex, and he starts going into the streets of the slums of Kenya and taking children in the middle of the night that are orphans. And there are hundreds of thousands of orphans in Kenya yeah. because of the sickness. The poverty and the violence, and these young kids have no parents, and so it shows him. Literally walking into the streets, and he'll go there in the middle of the night, and it's dark in these slums. I mean, you think you've seen ghettos in America? I mean, this is it's atrocious. And he just sings to these little kids, and they go to him, and he picks them up, and he takes them back to his compound. He doesn't just feed them, he doesn't just clothe them, he educates them. I mean, they have arts, dance, martial arts, every music, huh. everything you could think of. And then they show this part where, you know, how many orphans he's taken into this compound now. He walks in the middle of this huge compound. There's nobody there. And he starts singing a song, and he raises his hand in the air, and no kidding, they've got the shot from a helicopter. Thousands of kids come just thundering out from every corner of this place surrounding him. Thousands of orphans that he has brought in, and they interview his actually biological children, and they start talking about their father's decision to do this and people thought it was crazy. I mean, he was one of the wealthiest guys in Kenya. Yeah. And and they said, you know, one day all of a sudden I now have thousands of people that I consider my brothers and sisters and it's amazing. Their entire family is devoted to service. And in the ripple effects of what he's doing. I mean, he's not just giving these people something, he's educating them. I mean, these orphans are now going on to live very productive lives in Kenya. And I'll tell you these, man. I've had the chance to to meet some really famous people, you know, whether actors, athletes, politicians, this man, his wife, and his—I mean, they gave me the chills. I mean, they, they, this was somebody that I was—I was awestruck to meet and just be in their presence, man. I mean, this—this this is this is a real hero, What he does every day takes tremendous courage, man. I—I—I I, I rejuvenated
0: my soul as to to how I want to live my life, man. This the story that you're. T- the story that you're telling, the story, of the fact that they they've made a documentary about it and they're taking it to to Sundance and these film festivals, it's like why uh, my my thing is why are these stories so so ill the world is so ill informed about them why why you know like when you like the only thing I've heard about Kenya are the massacres recently the mall shooting last year um there's there's really there's really nothing there's there's no good information to come out of there. And and now you have this and it's such a small thing. You know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's not as big as it should be. It's not something that this is inspiring. You know what I mean? It's something that that can change. It it when you see a guy start with nothing, takes two apples, buys an apple, sells it for a little bit more, buys another apple, sells it for a little bit more. Now he can buy two apples and sell two apples. That's basically what you're saying this guy did with his, with his taxicab company out into being, becoming a mogul through oil and, and all these other ventures. And I, that, that in itself is inspirational. And then yeah. there's another part to the story where he gives all of that up because he wants to help people. You know? That, and,
1: and to answer your question, you ask, like, why are these stories so undertold? And, and honestly, and... and- this hurts when you think about it and it shows you how flawed we are humans. We, we are one of if not the most imperfect species on this planet. And, and it makes me sick, but if there was money to be made in Kenya, there's more natural resources. Yeah. That story would have been told already, you know, just like Boko Haram and the yes. fact that, that there aren't people rushing to save these men and women in Nigeria from being massacred. Um, that's one of the reasons why. And, and, and it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's frustrating. Um, I mean, it, it shows you, uh, how lustful we can be as humans for money and power. And, and I'm, I'm not that's that those are the only reasons, but honestly, those, those are the, the, the best reasons I can, the, the best I can come up for as to why these things haven't been told before. And it's, uh, it's awesome that, you know, my mentor in life, his name is John Bardis. He was the one who basically went on He's one of the executive producers for this, and he's been involved in charity in Africa for a time now. And uh, I didn't even know he was working on this project. I mean, the man is his fingers in so many different charitable acts yes. that you just never know what he's doing. And he comes up on stage and, and he shows this. And man, I'm telling you, it had everybody in the crowd crying, smiling, laughing, insp- I mean, inspired all at the same time. And you said his name is Charles Mully? It's- yeah, Charles Mully. And he runs Mully. Children's family, and I encourage everyone listening to to take a look at that. And if you've got anything to give, even if it's a dollar a month, man, that is that is money well spent. What they're doing over there, I mean, this is you know there was at, at every year when I go to this, um, you know, I I meet multiple people like this. I mean, there's there's two young women who who run Haitian families first, and these two young women are from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they're sisters. And one in high school went to do a service trip in Haiti. And basically told their parents, I'm not coming home, and my stuff, I'm staying here. Hmm. And then eventually the sister would go down. And and, you know, ever since the massive earthquake that happened there in Hades, yeah. you know, if I think it is still the poor country in the world, um, that they they stay there for these families and connect them to the resources to the sustain themselves, take care of their children, get education, find jobs. It's what they've devoted their life to. These two beautiful women who grew up in America and have everything at their fingertips gave it all up to go live in an area with no electricity running water in one of the poorest places, if not the poorest place in the world. And it's just amazing when you see human beings like this, that, that can do that, that can make that level of sacrifice. Uh, you know, the, these, these real in, in my world, these are real celebrities, you know, that I could, I could sit there, I could ask them questions for days and, and, and I love getting involved, you know, how I can, you know, I try to get as many as I can. And, and lend my leadership experience from the nonprofit world um, to them and, and help them to, to find the assets they need to continue to provide the services that, that nobody else is willing to provide.
0: It's, it's, it's crazy, man. It sounds like you had a, had a really busy week. Um, I know just through text, and we've been going back and forth um, all week just trying, trying to get together. But like, I, 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 for me, you, you saw this movie about Charles Mulley, I the the only new movie I saw this week is Hercules. That's the movie I didn't see. You know what I mean? With the rock? <laughs> yeah, no, not was even with just? rock. It was I don't even know who the guy was that was playing Hercules. It was pretty bad. It was from two thousand and fourteen. You, you saw it was a new Hercules or an old Hercules? It was a new one from two thousand and fourteen. It wasn't the rock. Um and, and, but, but you're, 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 you're meeting, you're, you're seeing the movie about Charles Mully. You're meeting the former director of the CIA. It's like, it's, it's, that's some, that's some deep stuff, man. Tell me about that guy, please.
1: Oh man. So, you know, Leon Panetta, really interesting guy. And, 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 you know, anybody
0: who's held the
1: position of secretary of defense, you know, they get a little emotional yeah. when they're around service members who have gone, uh, have gone to war based on orders and, and, and things that they've voted for and, and pushed forward. And so, um, we also had a family that was with us who had two of their sons killed in Afghanistan. One was a Navy SEAL, one was a Green Beret and their third son, a Marine, but he's still alive. And so, you know, he was around a number of different servicemen and, and servicewomen. And so it was really cool to see him interact. And obviously that's, those are things that weigh heavy on him, but he gave a speech. It was really incredible because he really talked about, you know, Washington, D.C. He said he's been there, he's been working in Washington for over 30 years. He was he was first a congressman and, and then rose through the ranks, director, of CIA, Secretary of Defense. He said this is as polarized and dysfunctional as he's ever seen it in Washington, which, you know, is no surprise to us, but it's sad. Yeah. Said, well the good news is though is I have seen Washington work so there is hope but right now it's as bad as it can be and he taught all these flashpoints around the world you know you've got uh, Russia bullying its way in Ukraine you've got what's taking uh, what's taking place in Kenya and Nigeria uh, obviously you've got the Houthis in Yemen yeah, overthrowing yeah. the there and they're backed by Iran and, and and he basically classified Iran's government as a rogue that is in search of a nuclear weapon, which is interesting when, when we get to kind of some talks with Iran later on. He talked about the rogue nation in North Korea that would love to have a nuclear weapon as well. Um, and, and all these, these factors that are so opposite of the Western lifestyle, uh, they don't believe in the same freedoms. I mean, we won't even get into women's rights in these countries because they're just atrocious. And, and he said none of the values that we have in our country mean anything if we're not willing to fight for them and and from his perspective you know i I, I mean he he feels that there is going to be a power struggle you know across the globe um for these ideals are we going to allow these extremist ideals uh to spread or are we going to fight for 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 rights for freedoms for for people in this country and uh you know, he, he talked about the role of, of the United States and, and how, you know, in, in cases, we, we are we're the hammer that, that, beats, that beats that evil back. And I know, obviously, we are far from a perfect country. There's no doubt about it. We have to improve on. But it, it's always interesting to get a take from a guy like that because specifically when you talk about these flashpoints and his beliefs on how to stop them, this is a guy who's privy to all the intelligence He's privy to everything. We're we're privy to really the propaganda that comes through the TV screen that yeah. forces us people to be as polar as Washington is. Um, so I mean, it was it was really informative, you know. And and now that he's out of office, he he can he doesn't have to be biased. So it was it was a really unique time to be able to meet and talk with him.
0: Let me ask you this: you you mentioned Iran and the Houthis, and I. Of course, I don't have the information that you have. I I do I do try to search for as much as I, as much of it as I can, but some of the things about the Houthis I understand. Like I okay, so the Houthis they're really really anti Al Qaeda, and they, they they they're they're going into these places and and they're they're basically it's it's crazy to me that they're saying. Um, that we hate al-Qaeda, we hate what they do, they come and they bomb our mosque and they do this and they do that, but then they turn around and do the same thing, but they run al-Qaeda out of certain villages and the people of those villages are, are, are afraid that, well, they're just going to leave and al-Qaeda is going to come back and they don't leave, they stay there and they, they create checkpoints on these highways and whatnot and then they get the support Like in my, in my eyes, I'm like, well, if they stay there and they're protecting these people, they're going to get these people's support. And that part of it is good until you get to the point where you get to their crazy talk about all Jews must die. I hope God kills them. And I, like I said before, me and religion, we don't really mix, but Jews are people. So if all of those people must die, I have a problem with that. Just like I have a problem with, 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 uh, Iran not being able to have like, like, power. I understand that the, the fear is that they get a nuclear bomb, but if Israel has one, I don't understand. If Israel can do it, why can't these people do it? If they're living, I know they're not living in caves anymore, but these people, there's, there's a, a large portion of their country don't even have electricity half the time, if not all of the time. And um, you expect these people to be civilized to our level you know it's 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 it blows my mind and at the same time I still don't understand it. I, I don't know where to start.
1: Yeah, well and I mean, you know, people who pretend to understand it um, are are most times wrong, you know? I mean, you get a lot of a lot of opinions on the the Iran deal that, that is, you know, uh, being negotiated right now, and all these people come up with opinions that they feel are totally right or, or totally wrong. Right. And, and it's all aligned with one political party's ideals. Right. So if you're a Democrat, then you feel like we have to make a deal. And this is the best way to go forward. If you're a Republican, then you feel that this is absolutely ridiculous. And we should sanction Iran to death um, and, and possibly eventually even go to war and bomb all their sites. And and both of these sides really think they're right. And and you got to ask them, like, based on what historical precedents, you know, I mean, uh, and I don't know which one is right. I can't even pretend to know, And yes, I am educated on on Middle East uh, affairs and, and and some of the tribal conflicts you know Sunni and Shia. And obviously, I spent um, a lot of time over there, But these issues are so complicated, and we we have to depend on these elected leaders to consult the smartest people who have studied history and studied these people and 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 their culture. And, and while also communicating with them to see what is the best approach, you know, Uh the, the difference, though, between Israel having a, a nuclear weapon, though, and Iran having one is, is Israel has not come out and said we reject Iran's uh, um, right to exist where yeah. Iran has said that about Israel. And so that is what makes um, hard right wing Israelis so anti Iran having a weapon of mass destruction because they feel like they would absolutely be the recipients of it, and and in many cases, Israel is, are the recipients of of terror from Iran-backed groups like Hezbollah. Um, Hezbollah is, is an Iranian-backed terrorist group out of uh, Libya, and and the Houthis in Yemen are sponsored by Iran as well. And and so you know, one historical precedent that does exist is that look, Iran is is very difficult to trust, and and their supreme leader even came out this week. And, and contradicted everything that's been said about their deal and you know that, that President Obama has been touting, saying that, look, there, there's, there's no way we're going to come to a deal unless every single sanction is lifted immediately, where obviously President Obama has said that's not going to be the case. Um, it's going to be gradual as you comply with the standards of this deal. Now, a lot of this is political posturing, but again, we aren't afforded all the best information, right? We, we're only afforded what our news outlets will send to us, which, which most of which is propaganda for either party, which makes me sick. It's, it's the reason why, you know, so people know my political stance. I am a political atheist, political atheist. I don't like either party. Um, I have a set of values that personally, and I know what, what, what areas that, that I support. But in terms of these two parties, I think that they are, they're both virtually useless to us right now in Washington and uh, it, it, it in many cases makes me sick at the lack of leadership, the lack of courage of some of these men and women um, and, and their survival instincts to just yeah. keep their jobs and get reelected in Washington, vice taking a stance and trying to get things done. But, uh, you know, this this deal in Iran, you know, all I could say is what, what we have done hasn't worked right. It hasn't worked yet. So then they're going to, you know, obviously the Obama administration, they want to try this avenue and broker a deal. And I think some of that or I hope some of that stems from, you know, their their, their care for the Iranian people, because I think the people in Iran who are continually suppressed by their government, man, they, they want normal lives. There's mass poverty there. You know, these sanctions are crushing them, obviously. And, you know, we had a great opportunity during the Arab Spring where the people in Iran, you know, were not happy and they were protesting and, and it looked like there, there could be, you know, some fighting breaking out. And, uh, you know, of course the government just, just crushed it immediately with violence and censorship and, and what they do in that country. And, uh, but these are complex issues that, that people who pretend like they have all the answers to are, are mostly full of it, to be quite honest with you. It's, uh, you know, I, I am certainly not in favor of anything that helps Iran move forward towards a nuclear weapon. And, and, you know, do I know if, if the sanctions will stop it? Because obviously they're still trying to do it now, um, even with the sanctions we've done. Do I think we'll be able to stop it with, with increased transparency through a negotiated deal? I don't know. You know, I'm not an expert. I've heard guys that come up that are UN inspectors and say this deal is the right thing. Then I've heard other ones that come up and they say it's the wrong thing. So I, I got to trust in our leaders, which is hard to do at this point. But um, the thing that, that concerns me, Eves, honestly, is... If you look back at the Cold War we had with the Soviet Union, a lot of that was a weapons race, right? We were looking for weapons of mass destruction. The difference there, though, was that there was a mutual fear of mass destruction and annihilation. Both sides understood that while they're trying to get nuclear weapons and and are getting nuclear weapons, that if one used it, it was basically going to result in mass extermination. Of, of both sides. That's the implications of these weapons. The difference here is in, 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 in Iran, that culture's religion has a very different view on death. You know, they, they view death as the beginning of a utopia. There isn't the same mutual fear of annihilation there. And I think that is what concerns people so much that have studied the Middle East and that are more familiar than, than I will ever be with that area. And I think that's the reason they're so concerned with Iran getting a nuclear weapon, because they don't have the same uh, the same value system or, or even just internal uh, barriers to using a weapon uh, of that level. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, this coming from an American, you know, after we dropped two bombs in World War II, obviously, is to some people going to sound... Hypocritical, but I think that that is that is part of the concern there.
0: When 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 you when you say something along the lines of, you know, people certain people look at death as the beginning of a, of a new life, of a new utopia, uh, especially when that new life is supposed to be so great, it's uh, it, it blows my mind that that is even a concept in your mind when your instinct, when there's nobody. That that really, of course, you have suicide bombers, but there's nobody that's going out there with with the intention to die besides those people. I'm talking about you go to war and you're in a fight. If 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 the next life is supposed to be so great, just why don't you just lay down your arms and take it? You know what I mean? It's um, and I I could, but but my my point is that because all of that is unknown, and that's just. Something that somebody says, something that somebody believes, uh, and everybody struggles to survive. Why? So much like, I, I just, it blows my mind that people are willing to kill each other and risk being killed for an idea. That it, it makes no sense. It, yeah. it, the whole world is broken when it comes to that, in my opinion.
1: Well, it goes it goes back to some of the issues you take with religion you know religion is is capable of you know it's a sensitive term but but basically brainwashing people to, to believing that that violence could be the answer and you know, we've seen it throughout history in all religions not just the Muslim religion but in all religions and specifically now you know the term jihad and, and what comes from that if you are if you die as a jihad and and, and what the implications are of that and, and, you know, what they believe. I mean, uh, there are people that sometimes get excited for death, you know, and that's how they convince these, these men and women to, to, to strap on a suicide vest and do that, you know? And it's, I mean, I think about that, how hard that would be, you know? And, and, um, God, I, I've been hit, not, not, I mean, my units have been hit with multiple suicide bombs, multiple suicide. And, and, and it's, uh, it's hard to comprehend what the men or women were thinking when they got in those vehicles, started the car, and, and ignited those bombs and, and what must have been going through their mind, whether they were drugged or uh, you know, the, how, how much hatred has to be in your heart for, for another group of people to justify not only killing your enemy but killing much more of your own people you know, that, that live in that country uh, and, and thinking it's okay and and thinking you're a hero for doing so but that's the power uh that that religion spirituality can can, can have over human beings and uh it, it's crazy and you see a lot of a lot of people in the muslim community really coming out against extremism and, and talking about how there needs to be a change and uh you know it's um it's it's something we i mean we could talk about we could have experts contemplate and talk about it forever i mean it's just it's been a problem in that region of the world for for just hundreds and hundreds of years
0: yeah it's crazy but um some of the things i was watching a documentary on on the houthis in yemen a couple of days ago and some 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 of the things that you are pointing out some of the things uh some of the checkpoints they like I was saying the Houthis they set up these checkpoints some of these al qaeda guys would would try to drive in and, and there was one situation where there was they had a little boy in the front seat of the car you know just to as as a decoy so that they could drive through the checkpoint um, and and drive into into some of the houses and, and 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 detonate the bomb. And the kid, of course, I'm assuming the kid had no idea because it was a child. But um, at the checkpoint, they panicked, freaked out, ran the checkpoint, and just blew it up before they got to their destination. But um, there, there's there's tons of innocence around. That's the thing. And then what what when I when I saw that story, first thing I heard, I thought of is like, man. And then you have these drone attacks where, yeah, there's, there's there. Im- just imagine being in, in, in Atlanta and you're at Walmart and there's a subway next to the Walmart. And because there is somebody that's supposedly a terrorist in that subway, you're threatened in Walmart. You know, that's, 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 that's the same thing. minus the religion it's, uh, it's, it bothers me that like, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm one of those guys that's like live and let live, man. If you want to do some crazy stuff, you do that over there. We we need you know what we need to do? Here's what we I got an idea. I got an idea, Brian. Here's what we need to do. We need to evacuate New Zealand and everybody that wants to go to war, just put them there. And give it <laughs> <laughs> you you guys can fight there. You can kill everybody you want. You can do whatever the hell you want on this piece of property, but outside of this place. There's there's not going to be any of this 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 garbage because it it's ridiculous. There's it. I don't get it. I I yeah. I just I it's, really don't get it. And it's I, sad. I, I
1: don't I, think New Zealand. I don't think New Zealand can fit everybody. But uh, you know, it's it's. I it, yeah, it's it would not. be wonderful if it was that simple.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, and I know a lot of people are critical of of drone strikes. Um. But I will tell you this much, and 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 this is. This is it's simply fact. Um, and people argue with me, I'll probably get tons of comments on this, but if they do their research, they'll find it to be true. Uh, our military in Iraq and Afghanistan,, yep. has been the the most precise and careful in terms of collateral damage than than any military in history. and and I I, I could speak to that from experience to where any time, a civilian is harmed or killed, there is a legitimate investigation launched on the officer who commanded that unit and whatever service member was involved. And there are absolutely repercussions if something is determined to have gone wrong. A lot of people think, oh, yeah, who's going to convict their own? I, I will tell you. I, I, have, I have seen people get in trouble, whether it was uh, striking someone, who uh, wrongfully hitting someone who was a detainee, not following proper detainee procedures, um, not following p- proper rules of engagement um, and, and, and things of that nature. using. I mean, even down to the fact that if you get into a firefight over there, you have to make, I mean, literally quickly a decision to ensure that you're responding with the right caliber of weapon. You know, so so I, I have seen Marines get in tremendous trouble. They were ambushed, and they responded in return fire in this ambush while they were on a mounted vehicle patrol with a 50 caliber machine gun, and and squad automatic weapons, and they got in massive trouble for using that 50 caliber machine gun because the caliber rounds they were getting shot at were determined in an investigation to be 7.62 millimeter rounds from an AK-47. And so when you're talking about units of 19 and 20 year old kids. Hey, we're getting shot at. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't shoot back yet, boys. Okay, only use these. I mean, it came to the point where we only carried the smallest caliber of weapons. So we we didn't take we didn't take firepower advantages in, into firefights, um, which which makes things more difficult. But it, the the reason being, I mean, it was it was the right thing to do because collateral damage, civilian casualties are a tremendous win for terrorists and extremists because yeah. when you're talking about counterinsurgency warfare, when you're talking about regime change and the things that we were trying to get done in Iraq and Afghanistan, the people are the prism through which uh, you will find success. And yeah, I, I believe that. If the people don't trust you, then they're going to help the insurgents come in and place IEDs, allow snipers to come in their buildings and take you out. If they do trust that you're actually there to, to help them, to, to secure their schools so the children can go back to school to allow them to open their businesses back up and, and have government programs begin to run, inject money into their economy, which were all things that were daily priorities for me um, in my area of operations. And they were some of the proudest days that we had, you know, when, when we reopened schools, when shops reopened, I mean, these were, these were the days that we high fived over there. It wasn't to us. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't what people think it is, you know, where guys, all we want to do is kill bad guys. You know, that wasn't the case. I mean, you know, when, when when you see teachers getting killed because they taught class that day by Al-Qaeda, it makes you sick to your stomach, you know, to, to see how these people had to live. And and so there, there's a lot of conflicts and a lot of arguments to be made. And, and I'm not trying to use this as a justification for, for drones and drone warfare. But all I could say is that, that, that the world is so complex and that there are a lot of people out there who feel like we should be isolationists. And... I will tell you from from my research, my experience and in my network that if if America were to do that the the global environment would be much much worse. You would see a lot more than you're seeing right now
0: yeah that um i i can, uh, for me I can only imagine but when you when you when you talk about you know nineteen year old kids being shot at and they have to decide. They have to decipher what what caliber of weapon they're being shot at with. It's. I'm sorry, but your life is on the line. We- bullets don't have a weight class. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that's ridiculous. If, if you're getting shot at, you should be able to fire back. I get that, but the uh, the the protocols and the the investigations that go into that type of stuff that it's it's amazing that that's the case over there because here. It hasn't seemed to be the case, you know, you get these, you get cops shooting, um, like, like the Michael Brown case, even the Eric Garner, even though it wasn't bullets involved, um, the little kid in, in Ohio, I'm losing all the names in my head right now, but, um, the 12 year old little boy in Ohio who was carrying a BB gun and the cops shot him basically on sight. It's, um, and then, and then a lot of these guys don't get charged, but just recently, uh, this cop, what was his name? Slater? Or, or, I, I lost the name in my head. But um, uh, he, he just shot a guy in South Carolina. The guy was, and somebody caught it on video. The guy was running away from him. And he shot him in the back, cuffed him. Plan, the video seems to show him planting a taser on the guy. He, he throws his taser on the ground next to the, the guy's body that's cuffed now. Um, with his partner there. And, and 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 it's a white cop shooting a black guy but his black cop i don't know if he's his partner or he was just another cop that rolled up on the scene rolled up on the scene is, is helping him with 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 the the suspect or the assailant as he's on the ground probably dead already being cuffed and the report says he's claimed that he stole his taser and and fought with fought with him stole his taser and tried to, sh- and then the other cop that was, it had to be obvious. He had to see him throw the, he was like facing him as he dropped the taser next to him. And the taser wasn't there a few seconds ago. And the other, so it's, to me, it's not, it's not a black and white thing. It's a, it's a thing about integrity and that whole thin blue line thing that they claim. And it's like, I'm sorry, but if, if the, if the institution, it has a lack of integrity that thin blue, it's not a good thing i'm not going to stand i'm so i love my son to death but if my son grew up to be a murderer i'm not going to protect him does that make sense yeah
1: makes total sense it so, makes total sense
0: so when 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 they say uh and then, then the, the the chief was was doing at a press conference was saying we have a large force of this number of guys and this is one individual who made a bad choice no there were there were two guys there that I saw making a bad choice because that guy backed him up. If that's if that's the story that came through the through the department, that's the story that came in his report. And the other guy had to write a report also because he was on the scene. They had they had to match up to some degree and that that's that's a lack of integrity. That's that's there's a problem with things like that. And I feel like if 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 the military can do that, just like you know you, the, the the rules of engagement. I guess the rules of engagement are you can't fire unless you're fired upon. That's not that's not the case here. But but if if those kinds of investigations are what happens in the military. Why is that not not the case for civilians when you're talking about the American people? You're talking about the people that you are sworn to protect and serve. This is the first cop to be indicted on, on something something like this in, in in recent memory. Yeah, you know, and I'm
1: I'm sure obviously they do get investigated. You know, the interesting thing, you know, when when you talk about our our rules of engagement, you have to have established hostile intent of someone before you can engage them. So hostile intent basically means you have reason to believe they are trying to kill you. And so when you think about this case in particular, you've got a man running away. I don't care if he stole your taser or not. There, yeah. there, there, there's not hostile intent there. A man who steals my taser and then runs away, that's not hostile intent. And, you know, it, it goes back to training. You know, and it, it is a very difficult time right now to be a police officer in the United States. And I'm sure a lot of them, a lot of the good cops out there, it's tough because they're probably going places and they're getting painted with that broad brush. And, yeah. and this is just reality. And it's tough for those really good police officers out there that are getting painted with that broad brush because, you know, we, we've we got some 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 really bad ones in other areas Um but but we've got we've got to train them better. I mean, what's wrong? You know, if if you know, and I and I'm not as familiar with the case because I was traveling this week, but uh, you know, you can shoot people in the legs. You know, <laughs> it's okay to do that. Obviously, if you shoot them in the thigh, there's a major artery there. You better put a tourniquet on immediately. Or you're gonna you they're gonna lose their life. But um, there's there's nothing wrong with shooting to, to see you know to to put someone down on the ground or. I mean, if it's a taser, I mean, I, I personally just wouldn't be all that concerned. I'm pretty sure you can find them and recover the taser later. Uh, but I'm not as, again, I'm not as familiar with the with the the facts of the case. With the Eric Garner incident, I remember watching that video and I was just disgusted. I mean, that, that you know, someone tried to say that that wasn't a chokehold. I don't know what else you would call that. That's absolutely a chokehold. And when someone says they can't breathe, um, I saw people trying to defend the chokehold, saying, no, that choke doesn't cut off air. You're out of your mind! It doesn't cut off air. If a rear naked choke is done properly, yes, it will cut off the blood flow to the head, which makes you go unconscious quicker. But done done hard enough, it, ab- it cuts off every bit of air. Yeah, um, and, you know, I think, and, and I if think if you have even the slightest bit of your forearm on the Adam's apple, it's going to cut off the windpipe. Especially when you're talking about a guy who's already—I think he already had some respiratory problems—and so you know, for for these for these you know these these, these police officers and these units, I mean, they're under massive scrutiny right now and. I don't see any reason, you know. There, there are transparencies in place in the sector I'm in for nonprofits. Our tax returns, to include my own salary, that they're all transparent. People can go look them up. We have to put that online so people could see exactly, you know, what they're donating to, where we're spending, our, you know, everything. Um, and I agree, you know, let's let's put the chest cameras on police officers. You know, that way it could do a bunch of things because you see this one negative story come out from the country. How many positive things, how many people did police officers save that same day? How many great things did they do that same day that didn't make the news, you know, but now the whole country's police officers are painted with this broad brush because this man did something atrocious by killing someone, uh, what looks and appears to be wrongfully. And I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not, I don't know if he's already been charged and what, what the step turn in the case, he but is, uh, is, I mean, that'll le- that, that takes, it takes away a lot of problems, right? You you get that camera on there, and we're recording everything. And you can get audio, and you can get visual. I mean, I know there's definitely a cost associated with that, but it, I think, in my opinion, it solves a lot of issues. And and just like we as fighters, when you know you're on camera and you know you're being recorded, and it's going to go out there, you're a bit more careful about what you do and what you say, aren't you? I
0: I th- I think so, but I I think um, I think the the camera uh the camera effect is. Is not as big as everybody thinks it's going to be. Um, that's that's like that's that's that whole, I, in my opinion, that's that that app mentality. You know, what what kind of app? Because the reason I say that is because you know what else was on video? Rodney King. <laughs> you know that yeah. that was on video, and those yeah, guys you're, you're, were those guys were. You're fine. going
1: deep. Yeah, you're right. That's a great point. Eve, you're going deeper, you know there there may be that. Uh, you know, and and we talked about racism in our first episode, but. There could be a much deeper belief and, and value problem at, at, at hand here. And I think that's what you're hinting at. And so I mean you you bring up a, a great a great point.
0: Yeah, it's 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 hard, man. It's it's one of those things. You said you you pointed out, um, you know, that not all cops are bad. And I completely agree. I know some cops that that are good guys, you know, but uh if I if I'm driving, um and I don't know if this is the case for for say you not necessarily just you being ex-military for you being ex-military for you being a white man I don't know if it's this is the case but if I get pulled over and I don't care if the cops black white or hispanic I don't know him I'm already on edge I'm already my my walls are up my defenses are up and I'm I'm trying not to make any mistakes and I'm definitely not giving him any reason to to find a, or feel that I'm being aggressive or to to want to or feel the need to protect himself you know what i mean i don't i don't if if i'm told license and registration if it's in my center console i'm letting you know it's in there and asking for permission to go get it simply because i'm not giving you any excuses you know and 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 I don't know. I don't know if that's how you, if that's how you react to cops or not. But as as a, as a, I've I've been that way as a young black man my whole life up until now. Now that I'm an old man, I still do the same things because I don't. If I don't know you and you're a cop, I don't trust you. I don't trust wow. you with my life.
1: Strong. That's strong statements. You know, I I can't say that I've felt that way. Um, obviously, I've certainly realized that that cops are human and that they're you know. They're capable of making the same massive errors and mistakes and flaws that 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 we all have. But, uh, you know, I can't say that I've ever felt, you know, scared of any kind of violent reactions, you know, being pulled over from a police officer, um, you know, or, 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 or in their presence. That's, uh, you know, that's a, a completely foreign feeling. And there, there's probably people out there listening to the podcast right now saying, well, you know, now you're getting to peer into to what our situation is. You know, I, I you're the first person I've heard put it like that. Man, and, and that's unfortunate, man. That's unfortunate. If that's that's how you're made to feel, it's uh, it, it's crazy. But you do. You bring up another portion of it too. I mean, the, the, you know, um, there's no reason to show any signs of aggression towards a police officer. Just follow the follow the procedures, and and you know, things should go okay. But obviously, like we found out in some scenarios, it doesn't always play out that way.
0: No, it doesn't. I I mean, Brian, you're talking about. I I moved to America at 15 years old. I used to train in traditional martial arts. I was walking home from high school one day, and my the the the, the kung fu school that I trained at was right next to a police storefront. So I'm walking to the kung fu school. Um, I've got it's cold. It's winter time, and this cop drives by me, a white cop, and I don't know what it means. But he he looks at me and he puts his makes his makes a gun out of his fingers, points at me, and pulls his finger trigger. Right. I don't know what that means. I think he's playing around with me. I'm a kid from the Bahamas. I've never seen that before. So I point back at him and I got a big smile on my face and I, I shoot back at him with my finger guns. You know. A few months later, that movie Black Panther came out. I watched it. This little black kid is riding his bike and a cop does that and points at him and I get it. And and what that what that means is I will. I yep. I'll shoot you, you little nigglet. You know. And that's there's a problem when when those guys. Or or no, not all cops are like that. I have a couple of friends that are cops, and f- of the five friends that I have, a cop, four of them are white. They're cool guys, but um, if that's if that that kind of person is in a position of power, uh, and and it's it's uh, how do you screen for that? How do you you know how do you how do you not put that person in position with a with a gun and and nobody's around and and it's it's it's. It's a hard thing to deal with, man. Yeah. I've, I've been... A lot of power. I've, yeah, I've, of power. I've had cops stand in the middle. Yeah, we were speeding. Me and this other car, we're on the feeder road in Sugarland, Texas. And we're speeding and the cop jumps out in the middle of the road, gets into a stance, draws his pistol and he's pointing at us and telling us to slow down. You know? Um, it's, it's... I don't know, man. It's It's when those those kinds of people are allowed to join a police force and there's uh, how do you how do you screen for that you know yeah
1: it's a great question you know i mean and, and look you know being in the military that that's something that through boot camp and through basic training and through hard stressful times you try to screen for similar things i mean you can't have people that are mentally unstable or who have prejudices um specifically in combat arms mos it was one of the one of the things that I enjoyed so much about being in the infantry was, um, you know, I I didn't see any racism. People didn't care. You know, when, when you go through shared sacrifice together, uh, like you do in the military, man, you gain this true appreciation and value for who each individual human being is, regardless of skin color, ethnicity, religion, background. And I mean,. Um, that was, you know, and, and obviously, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of things I miss about the military war not being one of them. But, uh, you know, that that was one of the things I missed because I don't think, um, you know, you don't see that everywhere. There's just there's so much misunderstanding uh, in America. And, and, and obviously, you know, you having to deal with that at such a young age, man, the, the fact that you were still able to grow up and, and keep an open mind, um, you know, with with white people and people who weren't black. Uh, is amazing because that that wouldn't always happen right i mean that would only that would only maybe fuel racism on your own part because of the way you've been treated
0: yeah it definitely would but fortunately for me anyway i came from i came from a place where you know right, there everybody everybody around was black you know um so I I didn't even think of it as racism until I got older and I started to, And really just recently I started to see it more. I started to see, you know, there there are people I like I have friends that that feel like they're not they they don't really have no racism to them because they have black friends. But no, there there are people out there that that treat or think towards other minorities that the same way I think about cops, you know? Oh, these cops aren't bad because I know them. I know who they are, but I don't trust those other um, those other mofo's. You know, um, same thing. Um, same thing with with some some of my white friends and black guys. They know me and they know other black people, and it's like, oh, those guys are cool, but the black people, I don't know. I don't necessarily trust them right off the bat. That kind of thing, you know, simply because they're black, not not, or simply because they're Hispanic or 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 whatever it is. But yeah, it's one of those things. So, um, <laughs> we got really Man, emotional. So many.
1: I know, man, it's uh, (laughs) two two MMA fighters diving into some of the most complex uh, problems of uh, of our generation right now. Um, You know, I'm going to make this before we wrap up the show. I'm going to make this request, you know, to all those listeners. um, You know, most people avoid the topics that me and Eve talk about. And uh, for good reason. Right. There's a lot of areas you could slip up on. There's a lot of areas where you could be factually or historically incorrect and need some tweaking on. And, uh, that's why people like to avoid it. Cause they don't want to put themselves out there and say opinions, but then sometimes when you put your opinions out there, you get educated in return where people can tell you where you were wrong, where you were right. So for those of you listening, you know, anything to offer, you know, send it via Twitter. But if, if you, if you do so emotionally, if you do so disrespectfully, you're going to get ignored or you're going to get blocked. Um, you know, but, but if, if you, if you, if you have a means of which to educate us, good links for research man, we will definitely give you a shout out on the show. Send it our way. We will read it. I promise you that discuss it as we continue to dive further and further into these issues as more and more headlines pop up from the Middle East to Africa to here in America and and just all over the world. And obviously, you know, the same in mixed martial arts. So we, we always thank you for your support, but we also thank you for, for your good constructive feedback too.
0: Yeah, I I definitely, I definitely agree with that. And, yeah man guys and and your, also your experiences you know if, if, if you if you can there there's there's twitter there's there's Facebook I've got my facebook page uh, at thugjitsu master Brian's got his fan page um you guys please you know if you if you have a story tell us man we we'd love to share it i th- I feel like the more people that that hear real stories from real people um. They start to understand more. It they, they opens your eyes, I feel, like. and 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 that's what we want to do, man. We want to talk about things and and educate ourselves, each other, and anybody that wants to hear it. You know, we we want to talk about it, and we want to hear from you guys too. And we're humble enough to admit on, on 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 later episodes if we
1: were wrong and correct ourselves. That there's no doubt about that. You know, and one of the one of the few positive things about getting knocked out on national television is you end up having <laughs> great humility.
0: <laughs> yeah. When you, when, you, when you wake up and remember. Yeah,
1: you don't remember. You just kind of know and sense something went wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's right. You watch the tape. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, awesome, man. Always a pleasure, Eves. And, uh, man, you know, uh, we dove deeper into the dichotomy once again and uh, appreciate anybody's suggestions on how to word our name. And uh, we'll be back soon with with another episode and keep it consistent, trying to do about two episodes a week. And, as always, we appreciate your support. Hit us up at thugjitsu Eves, we're my Jitsu Master, right? Is your Twitter? Yes, Thugjutsu Master. Yeah. And and I'm at Brian Stan. I kept it a little bit more simple than Eves, but uh, we can't even remember our own names because we got hit in the head too much. So we'll talk to you guys soon. Take it easy, guys.